Welcome to episode 55 of the Rex Chapman Show with my super dope homeboy from Lextown, Josh Hopkins. How are you, Josh Hopkins? I'm good, Rex Everett Chapman. What's been happening? I'm just hanging, hanging back in Brooklyn. Are you in, uh, it looks like you're in Austin. Yep, I'm back in Austin. Nice. Uh, it's cooled off a little. It's only like 96. Oh, yeah. So cool. everybody's putting mild. on a jacket. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's mild, weird. mild. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, episode mm-hmm. 55. 55 double nickels any any, uh famous 55s you can think of from well one that always jumps out at me is uh cedric swoop jenkins cedric swoop jenkins Mm -hmm. with the tip in at the my teammate cedric swoop jenkins with the tip in at the buzzer to beat louisville right Mm -hmm. yes i remember those guys those teams like richard madison was my 42 Oh, yeah, that's so I right. I remember the 55s. Uh-huh, 55s. Uh, Junior right Seau, 55. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, one of my faves, Dikembe Mutombo, 55. Uh, both Jason Williams, White Chocolate, and Big Jason Williams, 55s. Right? Interesting. Correct? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, another guy that, that came to mind was a guy named A.C. Earl. A.C. Earl played with the Celtics for a little while. He was number 55. Not a, Wouldn't be considered a great player. He was a great college player. A.C. Earl probably only averaged, I don't know, I'm get, making it up, eight, nine points a game. He got 50 one night for the Celtics. And one of AC. the craziest, A.C. <laughs> Earl. Yeah, amazing. He got 50. Really, got 50. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we shooters can get 50 if they get really hot but mm-hmm. this was not this was in an era when there weren't a lot even a lot of threes being he was a yeah. post player yeah yeah can you imagine that not, he was just like <laughs> he never changed one thing after that no. game he's like oh it's 722 time yeah. to get out with my left foot out first like, <laughs> <laughs> no, he had a peanut never. butter. If he had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that day, he ate one for the rest Yo, of his life yep. every day. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Uh, Lance Ware just won it on the current yeah. Kentucky team. Oh, Lance, five. Lance Ware. Mm-hmm. Uh, Josh, before we get into our guest, and we've got a great guest today, uh, Brett Favre in the news. Um, apparently, there's there was a welfare. Uh, scam type fraud uh that happened in mississippi our uh Mm. poorest poorest state in the country and it's been found out that apparently brett Favre was involved somehow from essentially uh money that was federal welfare money that was supposed to go to the poorest people in in uh, mississippi had been diverted to some private individuals uh for other purposes that's come out in the last day or two. What's your take? Anything? I mean, it's just gross and it's sad and you, you never want to see your heroes exposed. I love that dude. I love he's like he's like one of my top five all time favorite quarterbacks. Yeah. I mean, he was the gunslinger and he just had that, you know, one of the last gun. Woo. That's yeah, what he seemed like, probably. you know, and for yeah. this to happen. It just, it's, it sucks. And and then also you can't, sometimes you think there'll be some nuance with it. Like, well, you're reading a headline, but then you see the uh, text messages released and he's like, no one will find out. Will they? 
Yeah. You know, okay, well then take it. And the governor's in on it, by the way, and uh, divert it to a a volleyball, some sort of volleyball facility facility at his his daughter's school. But I will say on the flip, nobody's really talked about uh, how all he's done to further volleyball at his kid's school. You know, he really, really yeah, pushed right. them over the yeah, top. That's right. That's yeah. right. Ah, it's oh, just God. gross. It's just sad and gross. I, I hate it. I hate it. Is he um, is he going to go to jail? I, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not uh, somebody who's been tr- in trouble like I have. I should know whether he's going to jail or not. I don't know. Um, part of me, I, I feel, you know, just for anybody that gets in trouble, it sucks for you just as a person, no matter, you know, what you've done, it fucking sucks. You hope there's some kind of mitigating circumstance that, you know, caused this to happen for Mm -hmm. him, some explanation. That's what you hope. Uh, If not, man, it sure doesn't look good. Right. What could it be in this? You you, you, you try and think of that, but it's, it's, it's sad. It's tough. Um, All right. Well, look, we've got a great guest today and I want to get right. Did you read anything this week? Oh, shoot. Book Book, club. Let's do a book club. I didn't didn't read anything. Nothing. Did you? Uh, No, I didn't either. That's been book club. Now, who do we got today? We have writer for the Atlantic, host of Jamel Hill Unbothered, Emmy Award winner, author and everything else, Jamel Juanita Hill. Welcome. Wow, you really put my government name out there. Dang, Rex. It be your own people every time. Every time. I'm doing well. Uh, did we have the b- briefest um, teammate run ever? <laughs> You're kind of like uh, uh, Steve Nash and Dwight Howard. Uh, there for a little, <laughs> just a, sp- a split second. Uh, I-, I get people asking all the time, "How's the CNN Plus show going?" Huh? Same. <laughs> Does the how uh, do the banks still work out there? Still getting checks? Oh yeah, that's. I mean, it, it may sound it may sound ridiculous to people, um, and hence, uh, listen, we are in a in a privileged position, and this often happens when your talent is that you know for you. The contract is the contract. So when people were getting their, you know, uh, jollies and and laughing at, you know, you got a lot of it. I got a lot of it because we're very vocal and outspoken on a lot of, uh, you know, social issues, racial injustice. So people, when they saw that the network folded, um, they immediately ran to social media to make fun of us and talk about how we were fired. And that is why I made the point of saying, like, I'm going to be straight. Like they still got to pay out this deal. Okay. So I'm getting paid to do nothing. I'm getting paid to not work. The people you need to, what you need to realize is that our presence impacts the lives of a lot of people, you know, producers, um, you know, assistant producers, directors, uh, people's, livelihoods are tied to our success and the success of this network. So while you may think it's cool to laugh at me, what about those people who don't have the contract that I have, who are not going to get paid once this is officially over? So yeah, I'm, I'm straight. The people I'm concerned about are the makeup artists and everybody else, the support staff, everybody else whose uh, futures were, you know, were uh, totally impacted by the decision to fold this streaming service. So, yeah, I mean, it it was uh, unfortunate because I think, and you probably felt the same way, like we had a lot of good content, a lot of good things that we wanted to do. But 
it is a part of the business and um, it's unfortunate, but you know, we move on. <laughs> yeah. But you know, people don't, don't know about, you know, production. Those people all turn down other jobs. They clear their docket for this. So that really screws them. They're, they don't get yes. paid. And, and so you're right. That's I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. Cause um, and that actually, that was the case for several people on our show, people that were, in other jobs that we convinced to come work with us and because we had the desire to work together and then suddenly it was gone. And I, I'm, I'm happy. It seems like most of the staff on our show were, they were able to land um, on their feet, but it, it was very jarring for them. Very jarring. Same here, you know, cause we, we had put out some episodes already and our team was great, you know, and they'd come from all over, you know, all over the country to take these jobs. And, you know, the, the morning that everything broke, you, you were one of the first person, people that I saw, you know, people were going at you on social media and all that. And you said, look, I'm going to be straight. And it kind of gave me, you know, because I, I felt the same way. But I'm so new to a lot of this. I, did it hurt your pride at all, even though it had nothing to do with any of that? Did it hurt your pride at all? You know, it, you, I mean, you, I, I think that's an important thing. It does me a little it, bit. I understand, though, because people... Again, especially tying back to the things you tend to speak about, people are rooting for you to fail. You know, to your point, uh, it didn't hurt me uh, because I guess I'd sort of been through this before. You know, when I left Sports Center and when I left ESPN, so many people were like, "Oh, you got fired? They kicked you out?" You know, no, I I chose to leave Sports Center. I chose to leave ESPN. It was my decision, and this sort of fed a perception, I guess, that people have that you know that I I get fired from things or. Because of, of, of my personal um, beliefs that that is a roadblock to me having career success when it's been, frankly, nothing but a help um, that people know where I stand, know what I'm about, know where my integrity is. So it, personally, it didn't hurt, I think, because I, I am juggling about 25 jobs. So I was like, eh, this is one less thing kind of off the checklist. Uh, no disrespect to CNN, but this is like one less thing that I have to do. And so... Um, so, no, I, I didn't feel that way. I felt mostly bad for the staff. Um, disappointed. Both Carrie and I were disappointed because we we had already started to bank content and great interviews and really cool stuff that we were doing that people will never get to see. Steph Curry's record-breaking three-pointer, Jason Tatum's buzzer-beating alley-oop, John Morant's poster dunk. NBA Top Shot is where the greatest moments from NBA history are turned into officially licensed digital collectibles. NBA Top Shot has evolved trading cards by making it easier to buy, sell, and collect by removing the hassle of grading, shoe boxes, and shipping fees. You can buy or sell moments in a few clicks and access them at any time on your phone or computer. Your collection is always at your fingertips. Start collecting Top Shot moments in any way you want. Collect rookie moments from future stars like Evan Mobley and Kate Cunningham. Collect throwback moments from former NBA stars like Shaq and Allen Iverson. Or collect moments from your favorite team to gain access to exclusive perks. Grab your starter pack today and Top Shot will give you $20 back to start your collection and pick up some of your favorite moments in the marketplace. Go to about.com nbatopshot.com slash bballnews and get in the game today. So growing up in Detroit, in Michigan, um, did you play sports? Did you, uh, how did you, and did you play sports and how did that 
grow into you wanting to sort of follow sports and journalism? So, uh, yes, I did play sports. Um, I love sports. I mean, I was the neighborhood tomboy, loved watching sports, playing sports. The sport I actually gravitated the most toward was, was baseball. And so I played fast pitch softball in high school, played it. I, I had to start with slow pitch. And then as I got better, you know, uh, I made the transition into fast pitch softball and, and played on some travel teams and, um, you know, got some interest from some smaller schools and, uh, so yeah, I mean, I played shortstop and so I was really into baseball, uh, growing up. It was probably my favorite sport. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I was all right. I wasn't getting, I wasn't getting thrown out, <laughs> you know, the lateral quickness was there, you know, at that time. So I, I, I was pretty good and I was a good hitter as well. And so, uh, cause I batted cleanup when I was in high school and, uh, yeah, so I, I right-handed, yep. Strong righty, strong righty. And so. You know, had a pretty good arm. I like to mess with my husband and tell him, you know, I got the best arm in the house, right? <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Just so you know. So, uh, so yeah, like that, I was always attracted to sports. Like people asked me when I fell in love with sports and I was like, I don't even remember the process. It just, it was so natural for me to love the game and not just baseball. Of course, you know, college basketball, college football, the NFL, like I just, I just really absorbed and loved it all. The other thing I loved to do was read. I was a voracious reader, love language. You know, um, I couldn't do math, so I guess my brain was like, we know you can't deal with math or science. We got one other option left, like reading, English, language, that kind of thing. So I had a library card, spent a lot of time in the school library, read books on my own, big Beverly Clearly fan, uh, you know, Judy Bloom, <laughs> all of those sort of young adult novels, Choose Your Own Adventure. I used to get down on some Choose Your Own Adventure. These kids don't know about that. And so um, so I, I love to I love the storytelling. So I was attracted to writing and storytelling. And back then as you know, as you both know, is that the only way you could really keep up in your with your sports team was to read the newspaper. You read the sports section. And so I started reading newspapers because I was trying to follow my favorite teams. And somehow it just kind of clicked that I could write about sports. And uh, I made that decision. I wanted to pursue a, a sports journalism career. I was very specific uh, when I was in high school. And I started writing for my high school newspaper, uh, I did an apprenticeship program with the local paper, the Detroit Free Press, that kind of changed the course of my life. I joined the National Association of Black Journalists when I was a teenager. And um, yeah, I, I've been so I knew I knew to do this because and this is this is why mentorship is important. And I know sometimes that especially with young people, it could seem like we're not listening and then something gets something sticks and then it just stays with you. So the the apprenticeship program, I applied to this. Uh, I think I was a rising junior at this point. So this was before my senior year. And it was a very simple program that the Detroit Free Press offered. They took 10 Detroit uh, high school area students. Um, you did a six-week apprenticeship program. They taught you about journalism, about um, you know, what it meant to be in the business, learn the ins and outs of how to interview people, how to report, how to put together a story. And I was assigned to mentors who I'm still friends with to this day. And the woman who ran the program, Dr. Louise Reed Ritchie is her name. She was a drill sergeant. She was on us. And she told us, you got to have internships, you got to have clips. And she was the one that marched us all down to the NABJ convention, which was in Detroit that same summer. She made us a I'm telling you, man, she was on it. She knew. 
She made us apply. Um, she made us become student members of the organization. She made us hand out our resumes to people we did not know and introduce ourselves. And I would have to say, hi, my name is Jamel Hill and I am a junior at Mufford High School and I want to be a journalist. I had to do that like dozens of times at, and hand them a resume that. Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And she showed me. She showed me. Yeah, she she definitely showed me. And after the apprenticeship was over, I applied for a job in the sports department at the Free Press to answer phones and to do um, to answer phones um, specifically on Thursday and Friday nights because those were big high school sports nights, especially during during football season and obviously during basketball season. And what you did is the coaches would call in with a summary of what happened in their game, and I'd have to write up a little paragraph that said, you know, um, Greg Smith scored 25 points, had 10 rebounds, as Detroit Cast Tech beat Detroit Cooley 110-84. And these summaries would appear in the paper the next day. And so I was getting the experience of what it was like to work in the sports department, what it was like to write, and I'm, you know, 16, 17 years old getting this. So I knew I wanted to major in journalism. A lot of people at the Free Press went to Michigan State. They put the full court press on me to go to Michigan State, even though I did I did get accepted into Michigan and wanted to go there. But Michigan was ending their journalism program and making everybody an English major. And I was like, I want to go someplace that has a strong journalism reputation. And it was Michigan State. So I went there, majored in journalism, worked at my college newspaper um, all four years, had a, a bunch of internships. And I have been really blessed because I've been getting paid to write since I was 16 years old. Yeah. Growing up in Michigan, we, Josh and I are both from Kentucky. How old were you when you knew or became aware that the curriculum, some of the curriculum that we were getting in public schools, uh, you know, wasn't, wasn't covering, it was being whitewashed to, to put it. Uh, did you, did you have it? any sort of epiphany like hey and then how did you how did you study how did you learn did you take more courses in college uh to learn more than you got taught in public school so this is where i think um and, and, and where i had an advantage um detroit is it's probably currently the blackest city in america because okay. it's over 80 80 percent black it was that way when i was growing up so I had um, all of my teachers were black. I mean, from yeah, wow. elementary school I, I on one. to high school. Had you one. had one. Did you, okay. have, did you have any, Josh? Growing Probably. up, I had one. Okay, I had one. I had a couple when I went to Beaumont, the pub, pub, the public yeah, school, public the school. private. Yeah. <laughs> so my God. so my sense of identity coming out of Detroit was strong. I was very rooted in that, and I think. Uh, most black teachers, to be honest, because they know about the deficiencies in terms of what we're taught about real history, yeah. they make up for that. And in fact, when I was at high school, we offered an African-American um, uh, history course that Can I took. And that's what I learned about. Well, yeah, I, that's where I learned about black Wall Street. That's where I learned wow. about, you know, uh, black cowboys. When I, you know, when I learned the total, my, I'm still in contact with my African uh, American history teacher from there. his name is Mr. Fancher, Howard Fancher, wow. right? We're Facebook friends. And so because of that, 
I was I had a great sense of history. I mean, the books that they're trying to ban out, I read them all. I read Catcher in the Rye. I read, you know, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings and all these other and James Baldwin and all these other great novels. Like I read those in high school. Uh, and yes, I had AP English when I was in high school. Um, but you were aware of the disparities, certainly in public education. Like when I got to Michigan State and you also I also became very aware of what white people weren't being taught. Right. Because wow, my wow. my my you know, Michigan State is obviously a, it's a PWI, predominantly white institution. My sweet mates who were white and they were from an area outside of Detroit called Sterling Heights. And growing up, we used to call it Sterling Whites because it was so many white people. This, that lived this had there, to right? be this had to be eye opening, though. Right. Oh, it was extremely eye opening. So I'm talking to them. They had never heard of Malcolm X. Never. And I by that point, I'd read the autobiography. I was like, you never heard of Malcolm X. And they knew very little about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. They were like, I don't even think they were like, I don't think we we ever got the day off for that. They didn't know it was a holiday. I was like, how do you not know it's a holiday? Y'all was still going to school. Like I was like, some the math ain't math in here. And so we would get in these conversations and they were literally taught nothing about black people other than slavery, civil rights. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. solved it all. And here we are. That was it. And it it, it it taught me the disparities and not only what we were being ta- taught, but how we were being taught. Because my my high school, to my knowledge, I think we only had three AP courses. We had AP physics, AP English, which I had, and I think they had an, an advanced placement math. That was it. Meanwhile, they're going to a school where it's AP history, it's AP courses abound, and you actually get more credit for taking those courses and so that's why you have people who graduate with 4.2s and 4.4s and that kind of thing. And so I was like, okay, so they had way more resources and all of this, but yet what they learned was so incomplete. And I was really blessed because I had some fantastic teachers. And so I very much believe in the value of public education. And I could only imagine if we had the same resources that people in different zip codes had, the the things that I would have learned. But certainly it was clear to me and definitely in taking you know, college courses, sort of what some of the deficiencies were in terms of what we were being taught. But, you know, luckily I'm a quick study. And so I was I was still able to keep up. I mean, my biggest issue was my biggest issue was attendance, man, because like, you know, how it is a college. Once you get on your own. Yeah. Once you get on your own, it's like, yeah, you don't have mom waking you up at 630 in the morning or whatever. It's like, am I going to really try to get this at eight o'clock class? I don't know about today. I don't know if today's the day I'm going to show up. <laughs> you also find out if you're a self-starter, you know, you got to learn to be a self-starter and that's not my strong suit. So uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's so int- I love the way you said that because I never really related to myself because it's true. I learned that there was slavery and you know, and then we, there was German shepherds and water hoses. And then Dr. Martin Luther King, he solved it all. Hooray. Right. And you, probably, you probably learned about Rosa Parks, I'm guessing. Like it might, Rosa yeah. might have been mixed in there, right? Yeah, so a little started, bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I we remember were, Josh spe- is, spe- speaking Josh of, and like, like, Go ahead, Josh. of like, you read, I've never been a voracious reader at, at even though we have a great segment on the show, Book Club, you should, a lot of people are really tuning in for it. Yeah. Um, but speaking of art like that, I, I didn't really know anything. And this is before your time, but Rex will remember this. Then the the, the TV event Roots came on mm. and it changed oh. my entire life 
because it was like there were slaves and then now we're all good. And it was like the so horrifying. And that bit of art changed so many people's outlook and view. I mean, not it didn't make it that everything's good, but it freaked me out so much. And I, I watched it with my parents and it was I couldn't believe it. So you reading me being dumb and watching TV still through yeah, art, yeah. you know, learned a lot. Yeah, I mean, it, I think, um, and that's why st those stories being told are important. Is that it gives people an understanding that there's a there's pages and pages of things they have not been told, or to understand the gravity of what the trans transatlantic slave trade actually did. Uh, and I remember watching, you know, Roots 2, Roots, Eyes on the Prize. You know, these were all things that were great in terms of really giving a more complete version of history. And I find it so, I mean, it's shameful, of course. That's one word for it. But this attack on education and on, you know, this bogus boogeyman of critical race theory, the funny thing about it is, is that you could tell that those people haven't been to school in a long time or that they don't like they weren't being taught that shit anyway. I was like, so I, all the things you're trying to ban, trust me, they weren't being taught. Like you didn't have to literally do anything. Okay. They were not being taught this in, in, at most high schools. They weren't. So it's like, they're trying to ban something that they don't even know. I'm just like, you try to ban some, like, trust me, most of the history uh, teachers, and a lot of these schools, because they're they're cracking down on schools where they are majority white communities, which I'm just like, do y'all really think that a teacher in your community is going to have entire course sections on slavery? Probably not. It's going to be a passing mention or a paragraph in the book. Like, so you're banning something that was never there. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the thinking about that. All right, Jamel, who's the most famous person you could think of from Kentucky ever? In history other than you no yeah 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 <laughs> yes there's, there's one, one above person. all and when he says yeah. it you'll be like colonel sanders oh, that I just kidding <laughs> oh no i'm, I'm like kidding. oh just what? i know it's a made-up dude i know it's a fictional character i was like oh is no. the, the person who invented it from kentucky no, who am i missing one. who am i not the uh-oh muhammad ali Okay, so oh yes, yes, that's okay, right. All right, Duh. yeah, Muhammad yeah, okay. okay yeah. So that, that it's so great though. But Josh and I grew up in Kentucky. I grew up in the late sixties, early seventies, watching him fight, and could not understand how he was more beloved and more popular outside Kentucky, crazy than wow, he was yeah. in Kentucky. Yeah, nobody ever talked about him, and if they did, it was about being a draft dodger or whatever. And oh, no, they liked him when he was Cassius Clay, but not after he became Muhammad Ali. And I, I can remember just being so confused about that growing up. Right? Josh, weren't you? Oh, yeah, I did. You know, I was a because those that you know, I'm about three years younger than you. And those years make a difference yeah. at that point. I just remember watching him and and, and some kids not liking my father saying, I love him. I go, well, he talks a lot. He goes, yeah, but he backs it up. And then I, <laughs> I, was, I, was, uh, I was in love too. But yeah, being in the South, being from his home state, and then not being revered by the people around you as much as he was celebrated, uh, you know, through the media was really weird. Yeah. And, and, and you probably, you all saw another change because there was, it was, it, 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 I think it's a worthy observation that once 
he um, once his health began to fail, he became even more beloved. And this is at a time where he wasn't as vocal as he used to be. And I had the pleasure he could talk less. And uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him. In fact, it's the picture is in my living room. Muhammad Ali actually kissed me during a picture. <laughs> and I have that in my uh, living room or whatever. And my husband likes to mess with me. And he's just like, I can't believe I've allowed you to have a picture of another man kissing you in our living room. I was like, well, it's Muhammad Ali. So yeah, and I have a, And I have another photo uh, that I got um, that I bought on a cruise ship of all places in that art gallery of him and Ken Norton. And it's and them. They're, they're in a um, they're in Yankee Stadium. And so they're, they've done a photo shoot there. And, and the, the photo is fabulous. So I say and Joe Lewis's fist. Of course, that's in my living room being from Detroit. Um, but, you know, I think what you said is really important, um, you know, Rex. And it's why I'm I'm really thankful, frankly, that I did grow up in a majority black city that where um, my identity and being comfortable and rooted in my blackness was a part of the daily experience growing up and getting a sense of who you are and being able to carry that in mostly white spaces from a confidence standpoint was very key and significant in my maturation. So when people ask me like, Oh, how are you so outspoken and this and that, I was like, I have literally been the same way my whole life. I mean, is this exactly, is this why people, is this why you have so many haters? I, I do. I think it's just and I feel like I don't really say controversial things. I say things that I feel like are right in front of everybody's face. You know, it's even I, yeah, things that are truthful. And that's a big part of being a journalist is why I was drawn it's to it. It's just that, that you're saying them. That's it's just that I'm saying them out loud. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And um, it, I'm saying them and very rooted in understanding how systems work and how they disenfranchise and oppress and all of these things. And it was one of the main reasons I was attracted to journalism is that there's a truth that's there that you have to tell because it's your responsibility. I mean, a, a oath, I should say, an unofficial oath of our profession, and I heard it a lot in college, was the role of a journalist is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. That was the whole point. Journalism was supposed, journalists are supposed to be the watchdogs of society. That's how it started. That's its roots. And it is why it's so heartbreaking and painful for me to see the where the state of the media is right now because it's very corporatized and you have the people who are in charge of the major outlets you know where their political beliefs are and they infuse that in the properties that they buy the media properties that they own and buy and and operate and to hear journalists and and this is why in a in a way um, of course, I mean, if he could have never been president, that would have been much more preferable. But Donald Trump exposed all of the media's weaknesses, exposed them in a way that I hadn't seen quite done in my lifetime. And when you can't openly say the president is lying, when you can't use the word lie and you try to dance around it with mistruths or he said this, but it was this. It's like he's a liar. And as a journalist, you're supposed to be able to say that. And seeing all the hand wringing and for years, journalists ignoring what was happening, the, the depth of a very conscious white supremacy movement in this country that was being back supported and advanced by the president to not be able or to, to really be in a crippled state to where they 
were unable to put that moment into context and to really spell it out for people is the biggest failure I have ever seen in media in my lifetime. Wow. It, in my, it's so, it's so true. In my lifetime, Jamel, I've never seen anyone more just openly racist in politics than I had. I, I saw a guy when I was little named J.B. Stoner. He was from Georgia and he was horrible, horrible. And I saw David Duke. And it's like David Duke became president. And, uh, you know, you called it in real time. You know, there are many people that have been that that said it, um, but that people just rolled over for him, for him uh, will never not be confounding. Uh, I want to get to your book. You mm -hmm. got a great bookshelf. Can I, behind ask, can I ask one question yeah. real quick? I got to because it's so Go. the way things you're saying are so interesting to me. Don't, you know, the 24 hour cycle of news is just so bad for us. And, you know, the media outlets, I'm right, I'm left. In a way, don't you think that sports media laid out the foundation for that? The 24 seven sports stuff, you know, immediately you had to have an opinion, bad, good, whatever. And you saw it in society. It's you never heard people like I hate Magic Johnson. Like they were like, no, I'm their yeah. fan. I'm this fan. And now it's like people hate LeBron for yeah. what? Just because they have to have these opinions and they get so angry, but they have no uh, no scope. To, uh, uh, so it happens in society now. And now they love Donald Trump more because they want to be right or hate him and hate this, you know, uh, fuck Joe Biden. Like what? <laughs> Don't you think the sports media lay that out in a way? Even so, they on the news, they have the little ticker of what's coming next. You know, <laughs> it's like. I, no, I mean, Josh, I think that's a great observation. And it's true because it is. Um, and and like you look at a show like, um, you know, First Take or ESPN is a network which ushered in the debate show, really, in sports television. They 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 invented it, perfected it like ESPN brought that to media. Other networks started to copy basically a first take model like CNN, Fox, you know, MSNBC. Everybody started to copy that model because what changed is that viewers suddenly wanted to only go to networks or only go to certain shows that confirmed what they already believed. And that was not what journalism was supposed to do, is that we were supposed to lay it out. You decide based on the facts. Now. I understand that debate is very popular and it's what we do with our friends all the time. And I think as an entertainment uh, venue that that's okay. Like that's, you know, that's the fun of sports is saying, Oh, this player deserves to be in the hall of fame. This player does the barbershop, the bar, the bar argument, the barbershop argument, like those are fun, but it can be incredibly dangerous in politics. It can be incredibly dangerous when the, these are things that impact people's lives. And it became about more opinion than providing news value for people for doing the core tenets of the profession, which is to tell people things they didn't know, bring awareness to issues, hold those in power accountable. It became less about that and more about back and forth and argument and left and right and all those things. And, the fact that we have a network like Fox News, because Fox News, 
you know, I remember when it wasn't like this. Like, I mean, like I do. I used to go on Fox News and the day I stopped going on Fox News and I was like, I will never be on this network ever again was after Sean Taylor was murdered. And I was on Bill O'Reilly and he tried to paint this picture of Sean Taylor being a you know, a thug and somebody who deserved to be killed in his own home. And I was like, this is the last time I will ever be on Fox News because, you know, with the, his popularity and his success and as that wave of that type of host started to gain a lot of traction, Fox News changed and they're basically state-run media. They're no different than what you see in Russia. They're the same thing. They just, right? And they, and so that's not journalism they're doing over there. I don't know what the fuck that is, but it's not journalism. And it hasn't been for a long time. And so the fact that we know that that exists and that's, and, they, and they're the most watched news network in America, which makes it even more dangerous, right? And so we have allowed an open view, a network to radicalize an element that we know is extremely dangerous. And uh, I think seeing that, is you know the roots of it are where you said like it started in sports and other networks copied it because it became so attractive to viewers like viewers love to see train wreck television to be honest they love to see people arguing it's what they do and unfortunately when you're in that mode the nuance of what you're talking about is lost and People ask me all the time about whether or not I miss being on TV every day. I don't. And honestly, looking back on it, I don't know how I did it every day for like five years. Yeah, it is. And it's a lot. And you and you're just not, you know, none of my opinions were manufactured. But like, I'd be lying if I told you I cared about all the topics I talked about. Pretty much 70 percent of the topics we talked about, I didn't give a shit about. And so it was like, but you know, you know what your viewers want to see. And you you try to find even in the 900th LeBron topic of the day, you try to find something that's interesting or that you can um, take advance the conversation in some way. But I, I don't miss having to give my opinion all the time, particularly about things that I don't think are really that important. Do you think there's it's too late or is there a way to put the genie back in the bottle? Because now that toothpaste it's just like, is not like you coming said, back in the tube. It's no. not coming yeah. back in the tube. You talk about journalism and the integrity and now all these shows, it's just op-ed the entire time on all of these networks, even if some are lying and some are not. Now there's actual reporting, especially I love to watch the national news when it comes on. I love to watch PBS, uh, international news, but there's, there's no way, there's nothing we can do to even try and get people towards the center. I mean, there are things we that can be done. The problem is that I don't know that people have the will to actually do it. I don't know that they want to do it. Um, I think right now in this age of, misinformation is what we're in. There was the age of information, the information age. We are in the opposite. Okay. And because of the echo chamber that social media has allowed people to stay in and never have to challenge or never critique the things they think that they believe or never be offered other information that may be either a counter or supplement, even sometimes what they know. Like if you believe that, that, um, horses can fly. You literally can stay in that echo chamber and go to the horses can fly network and then go to social media and go on the horses can fly Facebook page and then only follow other Twitter followers. 
I mean, look, first of all, you know, of all the things that we have challenged in terms of beliefs, the one I never thought that was going to take hold were people out there actually believing the earth is flat. I was like, what are we doing? Like, but you can find on YouTube entire videos about the earth being flat. And I was like, people, what are we doing? People think John F. Kennedy Jr. is going to come back and be president as a Republican. This is crazy. And I was just like, wow, we are really in this in this kind of world now. And so I don't think we can reverse it. But what I think we can do is support the outlets and the people and the journalists who are still doing great journalism. A lot of local newspapers, local television stations, they're still doing great journalism. Unfortunately, they're having to do it on a shoestring budget. But you know, as we're recording this, if you look at the biggest, one of the biggest stories in sports, Brett Favre, you know, basically being a, a fraud um, and financially assisted or assisting in Mississippi's government to rip off people who need welfare, like this whole welfare uh, fraud scandal. Like that was that came to light because of original reporting, I believe, by Mississippi Today, which has been following this story for the whole time. And even what we know about the Jackson, Mississippi water crisis, that was uh, us finding out about how dire the situation is in Jackson, where they don't have clean water, where, um, you know, people are turning on their faucets and it's brown water coming out. That was because of local independent reporting. So. On one hand, while I'm with you, I'm just like, boy, this place is the apocalypse. On the other hand, I see enough pockets of great journalism that gives me a little bit of hope that there are some people out there who still care about the integrity of this profession. This podcast is brought to you by Branded Bills, the best place online for premium headwear and apparel. Branded Bills has hundreds of designs available, including our popular state collection, where you can show your pride with hats, shirts, hoodies, and more for all 50 states. Are you a company looking to brand your business? Branded Bills also offers custom apparel options that can meet your brand standards with fast turnaround and shipping. To shop or learn more, visit brandedbills.com today. The Brett Favre thing is, we could spend the whole a whole show on that. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, I, that's I just, a conversation. It's a really tough one, and you know, I, I it's hard to wrap your head around. I, I want to get to uh, your bookshelf back there with your Emmys, and you got you got your memoir uphill coming out this October, Jamel. What uh, what piece of life? What piece of your life did you want to make sure you got to use your own words? Um, you know, to share and and how important was it to write about the women in your family that raised you into the woman you've become? So I, I think people um, will be really, I think, surprised by how I grew up. And, you know, people see you on television. They see you being um, a part of some success. And they don't know the backstory or what went into you getting to the place that you're at. I mean, a lot of people um, see you now, you know, Rex, and they are some are still unaware of some of the struggles that you've had to overcome personally. And. I think, um, you know, I, I have I've joked about this, but it's true. It's like ESPN is maybe three chapters in this book and it's all at the end. So it's like it's not even, you know, so if people are expecting like an entire book about my 12 years at ESPN, they're not going to get that. I was able to pretty much sum it up in two and a half, three chapters. It's like it's pretty much just where it is. Um, the majority of my book is about, you know, growing up with parents who are recovering addicts. 
the um you know the the toll that took on me as a child um you know my mother survived a great deal of sexual abuse um write a lot about that and you know growing up and living with somebody who was suffering from PTSD we didn't know what that was then she didn't know what that was then but she was severely impacted you know by that and so um, you know, I came from a pretty tough background and I think people probably didn't know that about me or most people did not. And so, um, you know, I talk, you know, those experiences shaped me into who I am. It gave me a lot of drive and a lot of hunger to make sure that I made different choices and to make sure I was able to live the life that if not for some personal choices combined with things that they had no control over combined with being black impoverished and growing up in Detroit. If not for some of those obstacles, they would have lived the life that I'm living now. And uh, as much of the difficulties that both my mother and father and my grandmother all went through is that the one piece of satisfaction I wanted to give them to, to know that what they poured into me worked. And so, um, so that's what this book is, is about. And I hope that for a lot of people who read it, that, you know, they're not only able to find out more about me than, than what they knew, but I hope they can understand the testimony of it is, uh, it's why I, I laugh so hard when people (laughs) accuse me of having a victim mentality or wanting to be a victim. I was like, you don't know my story. You have no idea. If I, if that was really my mentality, I'd have laid down a long time ago. And so, um, so yeah, I just, I, I, it is, it was a very difficult book to write because it did force me to revisit some incidents and some things that happened to me in my childhood that frankly, I didn't really want to revisit. I, I'm wondering, Jamel, because I can hear it in your words, but I can see it in your face. You know, there had to be a lot of tears writing this book in certain. And and it, I also know, you know, anybody that's been to therapy uh, whatsoever, it, it can be cathartic, but it's it's very painful uh, bring, thinking about memories you probably haven't thought about and for for reasons you haven't. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't uh, that I didn't acknowledge that it happened. It's just that I didn't necessarily want to go back there because I didn't want to be put in that emotional place again. And I know that even when my husband read it um, and he read one of the earlier editions of it, I mean, there were a lot of things I had never or some things I had not discussed with him. Just I mean, he knew he knew the the general story, but like specific incidents with him, I never discussed, you know, like one of the things I tell um, it was two two parts that were especially tough for me to write about in this book, which, by the way, I should mention drops October 25th, but you can pre-order it wherever books are sold. But two of the, thank you, two of, I'll make sure you get a copy. Um, two of the most, both of you, I'm, uh, two of the most challenging parts for me to write about was, um, you know, this, we lived in this very shitty apartment. And when, um, after my mother, her, she was, she had gotten divorced. Um, our house had got foreclosed on. We were living in this terrible apartment that was on the west side of Detroit on Joy Road and Lauder. And the woman next door had gotten murdered. And um, that who lived next door, she got murdered. And, you know, my mother was in the, she was really struggling badly with, with addiction. Um, 
she was addicted to to pain pills. That was her preferred choice. And um, but she did dabble in other drugs. And on this particular night, she smoked some crack. And my mother showed me what the crack looked like. And she was like, I'm showing this to you because I don't want anyone to ever take advantage of you and you not know what this is. And she goes into this whole speech about how this is a dangerous and don't ever do it and don't ever turn to drugs. And I never saw her smoke it, but I know that's what she did. Right. And that's why she was showing it to me because she had bought it. And the reason why she had is like that woman getting murdered. My mother, she was raped at gunpoint in Texas. We lived in Texas for a year and she was uh, kidnapped outside of her car going into her apartment by a serial rapist that was in the area. They never caught him. And for years, even though we moved back to Detroit, my mother lived in fear that her rapist would find her. And when that woman got murdered, it triggered everything from that incident that she never received any therapy about, that she never got any counseling for. And that's the reason. And so writing about that and even had, you know, talking to my mother and having her unfortunately have to describe the details of her rape was I knew the story. I had not revisited the story in a while. And that was very tough for me to write about. And so just thinking about putting myself in her shoes to further bring the emotion, frankly, to the pages so that people can understand that. And that's a story I had never shared. I mean, my husband knew that my mother had been, um, uh, she was a rape survivor but he didn't know the details and the details are, are in the book. And so, you know, um, you know, writing about that and, and writing about some other incidents that happened um, in my childhood were, were very, very tough. Uh, I'm sitting here thinking it. And just as a, a person who follows sports grew up, you know, I want to be on the street in Smith and I hope I can go to college and be play on TV and all that stuff. <laughs> what we don't realize and, you know, I've known known you for a few years. We don't know each other extremely well, but th- this is the most in-depth conversation you and I have ever had. And it, it reminds me, it, it, you know, Michael Jordan just, he doesn't, he wasn't just invented when he showed up at North Carolina. He's got 18 years that, you know, are filled with whatever it is, you know, all of our sports heroes, they, everyone has a backstory. And until you sit down with somebody, you never understand, you can never understand how yeah. complicated and fascinating they are. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's also, um, you know, when you learn these things, you understand the makeup of a person, you know, Michael Jordan's a great example because what him being cut from his high school team, he carried that with him forever. And, <laughs> yes. And it's what made him become one of, you know, the greatest athletes of all time and, and certainly the greatest basketball player. So I, and, you know, I, I, it is another reason why I love sports. It is finding out those stories that define and shape people because I knew I had my own story that defined and shaped me. So everybody has something that defined and shapes them and how they come through it is the beautiful part, right? The part that we we want to pay attention to and, and we want to learn. It's not about the, the details of what happened. It's about how you are able to come to a point where you overcome many of these things and many challenges that frankly we a lot of us face yeah um jamel uh we're gonna let you get out of here in a second but what i just want to let you 
talk briefly. What was it like uh, these past few weeks watching Serena finish up? Oh, yeah. So, you know, and I don't know if you, you probably, I'm sure both of you have this feeling, is that it is, it, it's really kind of surreal when the people you've grown up watching suddenly are retiring. And I'm like, and some of the, and, and, and you know, what really makes me feel 7,000 years old is that their kids are playing. And I'm just like, oh my God. Their kids are playing and it's just like, you know, I, it makes me understand that as I was growing into my sports fandom, when you would hear, you know, the elders and older people be like, yeah, I remember when Bill Russell played. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then who knew that one day I'd be like, yes, I remember when Serena played. I remember when she debuted as a, as a pro and uh, when she was just a little, little girl, her and, and, and Venus, when they arrived on the scene with the beads, you know, and their cornrows and it was just shocking to see in a sport that white people don't understand you know unless you grew up really watching tennis and watching them at that age people don't understand that venus was the one <laughs> for a minute remember exactly. like they, oh they, yeah and, you know because serena was a little girl you know she wasn't even right. to be taken seriously yet and but venus and then all of a sudden out of nowhere <laughs> Right. Well, I know, but I always I looked at that and I'm like, Venus has handled that with such class. Yes. That's so difficult. And to, oh, you're not even this one. You know, she worked just as hard. She had a, and she was great. She just her little sister's the greatest of all time. And she's always handled that with such class. I thought about that and, with her and, watching Serena. Yeah. And they're also for them to maintain such incredible closeness despite they've they've experienced different levels of success at different time and like you said like people you know to under to see them have grown the way that they have like venus was the number one they were they've both been number the number one players in the world they both you know won an incredible number of grand slams but the person who did see it coming was Richard Williams. I mean, he told people and everybody thought he was nuts when he said that Serena was going to be better than Venus. He said that and he said it multiple times and he didn't say it as a diss, but he was like, y'all don't know what's coming next. And he said Serena is going to be the greatest to ever play. And, you know, pouring that kind of manifestation into your kids is like, you know, it, it was incredible for him to be somebody who learned how to play tennis watching videotapes reminds me of, it reminds me it reminds me uh i i was out in la six seven eight years ago and uh living out there and went to a high school ball game a summer game and lonzo ball was a junior going into junior his junior year and i walked up to his dad afterwards and i said he's got a real chance he said i know <laughs> 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 okay all right he knew uh you know, let's get out you know jamel it doesn't get better too it keeps going i can remember when i was like the nfl players are my age I, I, yeah. and then they were a little <laughs> younger and then the guys retiring were my age and now then coaches were my age. now they're way younger and this past year i was watching i was like the hall of fame inductees yeah <laughs> Like, why God? Why? <laughs> it's 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 wild. No, it is and somebody when I was a, a young sports writer, an older sports writer told me this. He said, You'll see it eventually. Cause when I started as a professional, I was 21 years old. He was like, Listen, you're young now, but let me tell you, it's gonna get to a point 
where the athletes stay the same age and you keep getting older. It's like, because as long as you're covering these teams, like they're going to stay between 25 and 34 and you're going to be the one that your age keeps going up. <laughs> All right. And, but in a way though, I actually, I, I love to see it because it is, you, you literally are witnessing sports history and it, and it's great that, you know, people like us can really give context to the greatness that we've seen it because we, we've seen it at every stage. Like we, we saw when, as you said, when Serena was just an afterthought to her becoming this. And so we can speak very, you know, intelligently about her, her brilliance. You know, I, I, I love what Bill Russell meant to the game of basketball, but I never saw him play. You know, he was already done by the time, I became a basketball fan. But I could tell you about Magic Johnson, right? Because I saw Magic from the start to the finish, okay? And understanding that road and, you know, and, and all of that. So I think that is probably the incredible thing about being a sports fan because part of it is about oral history and about being around people who can help you understand what you saw. And so I, I consider that to be a, a blessing. What's your favorite movie? Ever. Um, so it's either one of the I'm either it's either one of the three. It's either Shawshank Redemption, The Color Purple or Imitation of Life. I'm a, like, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, uh, and you um, know, the three. Not even oh, like, I, know yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. I'm like, it's, I, I, I have no messing around. It's like it's these three. What about front row center for any any uh, musical act or singer or speaker alive or dead front row center? Well, I've been fortunate. I saw Michael Jackson and Prince. Okay. Ooh, I've seen, I, I, I did too. Yeah. I did too. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw Michael and Prince and, and Beyonce because she, she's in that category. I've seen Beyonce a billion times. Okay. Um, but if I could see anybody, it'd be Whitney Houston. I really wish I would have seen Whitney Houston at the height of her superpowers. 1A would probably be Luther Vandross. Now I saw Luther. Oh, I met yeah. Luther. Yeah, Luther, uh, what? the best. Yeah, he he was uh he did a a concert one night in Phoenix uh, when when I was playing for the Suns and got to go back. It was I, I barely even remember. And the only other the other great one I was in college and uh, got to meet Stevie Wonder at and saw his concert mm, at Rupp Arena. I've seen Stevie in concert, but that's amazing. Yeah, um, so good. Jamel Juanita Hill, thank you, thank you for doing this. <laughs> Come back again. Oh, thank you, guys. I, anytime, I will come back for sure. And I'll make sure you both get copies of Appeal. So thank you for having me. Go Thanks Spartans. for coming. All right, see y'all. <laughs> I loved her before. I love her more now. How about you? Same, same. And wow, we she fits right into our theme of makes yes. me feel like shit about myself. I mean, yes. self-starter, a go-getter, someone who would not be denied. That's her. The, the thing that I, I, you know, and you know my daughters, uh, Tatum, Tyson, and Kaylee, the thing that I love most, maybe most about Jamel, is her sense of self and her confidence and how she, I think, how she values herself. Uh, she doesn't let others do that. And I think this that's exactly how we want all want our, our young, you know, daughters to grow up and have a very yeah. confident sense of who they are and what they are and where they come from. And Jamel came from incredibly tough circumstances. And to be as uh, 
as much of a sponge as she was to have soaked that up and and to be where she is today is is a real testament to her, her yeah character yeah, very and impressive yeah, yeah i like her i like her even more now you're right that's a good way to put it uh well bud you know you want to come back and do this again next week i do okay let's do that um next time we'll see you right back here for the next episode of the Rex Chapman Show with super dope Josh Hopkins right here on basketballnews.com.